So there's a lot going on in this passage. While we have only seven verses here and no big story described in the passage itself to go along with these verses, the text is theologically meaty. It's like a bite of super well-done steak that, while, uh, while small, you're still chewing on it an hour later. Our reading today is so dense because it deals with theological fundamentals, namely the topic of justification. At risk of preaching two sermons, I'm going to lay out first what Paul was saying to the church in Galatia as it pertains directly to the passage. Then I want to speak on what we can gather from it in relation to the topic of racial reconciliation. This section from Galatians gets used to justify various kinds of inclusion in the church. It takes on a liberation theology angle. The section appeared in the Juneteenth liturgy held with St. John's and St. Peter's this past Sunday, which I was a part of, and it also shows up online in recommended Juneteenth liturgical resources. The irony is that While we use this text to argue for a revolutionary kind of liberation theology in our context, Paul was arguing for a still revolutionary theology, but not the kind that actually frees people from physical bondage. Let's unpack what's being said first, and then we can get to what it can say to us today in our context. Paul is dealing with some major issues with the church in Galatia uh, because there are concerns between Jewish people who have been converted to Christianity and Gentile converts to Christianity. Missionaries have come to the people saying that in order for the Gentiles to be fully converted, they need to be circumcised. The first thing that comes to mind is, ouch, But the second thing is that this background conflict establishes the context for understanding what Paul actually intended to say. In the last verse, Paul brings up the concept of the promise. The promise goes way back to Genesis 15, where God says that Abraham's descendants will be as many as the stars. This promise comes before the institution of the law. The law and the works of the law come later through Moses. So Paul is making the case that it wasn't Abraham's works that brought him into the promise because the law, which gave us the works, hadn't been established. Genesis fifteen six says that because Abraham believed the Lord, the Lord reckoned it to him as righteousness. We hear the echo of that in uh, this passage. So God justified Abraham because of his faithfulness. Paul is saying that the man- that manner of exchange still stands for the Gentile converts. We don't need to be circumcised. We just need faith. It's still a theological debate whether Paul was saying that we need faith in Christ or the faith of Christ to be justified. But the bottom line is that grace leads the process of our being put in right relationship with God, 
even when we lack trust in God. The revolutionary part of what Paul argues is that through Christian faith, God can make a converted Jew or a converted Gentile upright, righteous, justified before God. Through the Christian faith, God can make an enslaved person or a free person upright in God's sight. Both males and females can be righteous before God. God's favor is not caste or class-based. Our social condition does not determine God's favor for us, and we don't need to check boxes for good works for God to bless us or for us to be in right relationship with God. Whether converted Jew or converted Gentile, whether enslaved or free, male and female, God's favor, which is an extension of God's love for us through Christ, God's favor is available. In a world where people thought and still think that social standing equates to God's blessing or one's righteousness, Paul's thinking was and is revolutionary. The catch in today's more liberal context is that Paul was not arguing against the social implementation of the distinctions of Jew and Greek, male and female, slave and free. We know that Paul's theology entailed some sharp commentary on the roles of women in the church and also that he observed social distinctions between men and women. We also have his letter to Philemon in which he returns an enslaved person back to his enslaver. We know the tragic consequences of this stance in relation to the ways that we've wrestled globally for thousands of years with the institution of various forms of slavery. That letter to Philemon basically gives us proof that Paul was not ready to abolish slavery or emancipate an enslaved person based on his interpretation of Jesus' message and witness. Paul believed that enslaved people should be treated graciously, not necessarily that they shouldn't be enslaved. However, slavery ended in the U.S. because there were abolitionist Christians who understood that while the general institution of slavery was allowed according to the letter of the law, even by Paul's social theology. But slavery violated the essence of the law, which is fulfilled through the love of God in Christ. Now that slavery is legally no more in the U.S., the season of slavery is over by law. Our social context essentially mandates that we, con that we continue to take a broader view of Paul's words, like the abolitionists. This raises another fundamental theological issue, which is the issue of biblical interpretation. Because the Bible is fundamental to Christian theology, how we interpret it is of utmost importance. Especially for the Protestants in the room, that's one of the chief building blocks, if not the chief building block, to how we develop theology. So how do we, as readers of the Bible, interpret the text? 
in the interpretive process, it's almost like we become constitutional lawyers. Some of our Supreme Court justices would uh, lead their interpretation with the idea that the law applies in the original way that it was intended. Others would give the law more breathing room, allowing it a broader range of interpretation that includes what the law can mean in our contemporary conditions. So placing these ideas in relation to the Bible, some interpreters would say that we need to find the author's original intention and through careful exegesis, we can find what the texts mean. My stance includes that we do need to meet the text on its own terms. It's important to know what the biblical authors were thinking. And also, they may not even have known the full significance of what they were saying. For instance, I could make a statement and intend to mean one thing, but when you hear it, it applies differently to you based on your circumstances. I could make a very spirit-led statement right now with my current level of understanding But then even my own understanding of the statement I'm making right now could change in the future based on how my consciousness expands in the future. Like Bishop Yvette Funder once said in the sermon, what God said for last week is for last week. What is the word of God for today? The point is, the Spirit can use our words and actions in ways that transcend our original intentions, and we just don't have full control over how the Spirit moves in us to speak and write and act. We also don't have full control over what the Spirit does with what we do once we do it, especially when it goes as public as the Bible. This is all to say that what Paul thought, wrote, and said matters. And so does what we think, write, and say. Paul didn't intend in this passage of Galatians the breadth of what many of us mean today. But that's okay, because the Spirit is still speaking. What Paul did leave us with in this passage was the idea that God seeks to broaden the church's understanding of the ministry of reconciliation. The word reconciliation never appears in this passage. But Murray J. Harris notes in the New Interpreter's Dictionary of the Bible that reconciliation or the breaking down of barriers, and namely in this context, the barriers between converted Jews and converted Gentiles, was a central concern for Paul. Reconciliation did not mean that the two parties had previously been together in society. It meant that because the love and favor of God in Christ extended to both parties, it was necessary that the enmity that existed between those two parties be dissolved. Furthermore, and really get this, the grounds for that enmity also required dissolution. In other words, it's not enough to say that we've been fighting and fussing, but now we're together. 
it's not enough to have a kumbaya moment where we're begrudgingly together, but we're together. Nope. Reconciliation entails reparation. In Colossians, we also get the basis for the idea of um, the cosmic Christ. Has some of y'all heard of that? The cosmic Christ, Matthew Fox and Cynthia Bourgeau and Richard Rohr and all those great people that we have in the bookstore. (laughs) But it's this idea where Christ is the firstborn of creation and through Christ, all things come into being. And so the whole universe is held together in Christ. The first chapter of Colossians tells us that God desires to reconcile all things through Christ. Specifically regarding racial reconciliation as a spiritual concept, I think that we'd be wise to begin with this spiritual view. In that case, reconciliation is not a mythical time when we were all one people in a social setting. Rather, reconciliation begins with our ultimate oneness. It begins with the ultimate oneness of all things in God. And now it's time to really preach. See? (laughs) We didn't got the theological lesson over. (laughs) We can really do some preaching now. See, God didn't just ordain that some of us be God's children. No, all of us partake in the promise. All of us were created in God's image. And that was before the law. That was before Christianity. Oops. Before we, <laughs> before we came up with every kind of way to say someone was more or less loved by God, all of us were brought into being in the divine image. Through Christ, all things were made. There's no lesser loved, no lesser favored. There's no you're black, white, red, brown, yellow, purple, or orange, so you belong to God less, so then God cares for you less. No. We are all one in God, and it is our distortion. It is our inability to fully affirm that oneness that causes our sense of lack and that causes so much grief in the world. It is our sin that causes the distortion. I'm going to go past what Paul said and say that it's also our distortion that keeps systems in place that perpetuate a lack of reconciliation. We can place so much emphasis on keeping one another controlled and chained up through the racism of laws and policies, prisons, business, medical systems, policing, and on and on and on, that we forget that regardless of what we think, we can proof text from the Bible for our injustices. We never want the mess that we do to others done to us or to our children. We can become so wrapped up in the letter of the law that we forget the essence. And that was actually the essence of of Paul's point after all. That essence is love. If you want to look at God's face, look at your neighbor. 
Then treat your neighbor as if God had come to you in the flesh. It is the reconciling love of God which reminds us over and over and over again everything is one. Everything is one. Everything is one. Hallelujah. Amen. Amen. Amen.